Mona, I guess it was. No. Uh, hello, everyone. This is Jordan Smart, and I am here with Nixon, Logan, Danielle, Esther, and Adrian Battle-Marson. Uh, you're listening to, or you're watching also, Affirmative Interaction. Also, uh, it's very important to point out that there is a significant last name change here. <laughs> I, I mean, I could say it, but, but we should leave it to the people that uh, <laughs> that, that had the change. Uh, would you like to explain this to us, please? Do you, you want to go for it? Explain what? Our last name change. Oh, we got married. <laughs> no! Let's go. We're ready. This is fantastic because this is the uh, this is literally the first marriage to be born out of a podcast. Um, so we're super excited. <laughs> <That is fantastic. laughs> we were here from beginning to end for sure. The, beginning, yeah. the, whole, the whole thing, the whole thing. So we're excited that you guys were able to get together despite the pandemic that's been going around. Yeah. Um, so please tell us, like, how has a married life been? It's been fun. It has. It's been a lot of fun. All right. I know. Go, go ahead. There you go. I was gonna say it. Um, I I think we shared a bit of it at our, in our last one, but you know, for I mean, you guys have been kind of we've been friends with you all for a while, so you know, Esther and I have been long distance, um, like three, three and a half years. Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, it it took some readjusting because we had in some ways kind of like. Been programmed to think, all right, after like four or five days, one of us is leaving. Like I, either I'm going back to Washington State or she's going back to Indy or Maryland. Um, and that was like, dang, bro, like you're still here. <laughs> <laughs> that, that took a while. Um, or just like little things. Cause I, you know, for a year I was like, hey, my fiance and I, um, so it is just like a reminder, like, oh, snaps, we are married. Like that, it, it's still crazy to, I don't know, just to kind of like process sometimes. But man, I'm, I'm good. It's just good to have her around all the time. Because um, that, I think, was probably the biggest thing that just made long distance trash, bro. It's just like there, those moments where like, I wish Esther was here just for those, you know, nonchalant, random moments. And yeah, it's been good, man. It's been good. That's good. Uh, how about you, Esther? Yeah, I mean, I just second a lot of what you said. A lot of moments where it's like, like when you only have a few days to be around somebody, you try to like squeeze everything in. But now it's like, oh, wait, like we literally have like all the time in the world now. So that's been nice. Forever, yeah. literally. <laughs> really, really fun. Like we can't, I mean, you know, we didn't get to do like a honeymoon because you know the pandemic and like, you can't go anywhere. But like it's just been nice, like just like having all this time to just be around each other all the time. Yeah. And yeah. Mm -hmm. I heard Canada's nice this time of year, so I didn't <laughs> That's really good. Um thank you, uh Logan. Uh Logan, I understand it that you are <clears throat> You were attending some protests. Uh, aside from your uh, career as a comedian, you also do go out to protest. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and uh, we just want to do a quick shout out to Donnell live from uh, NY. 
Um, no, he what? said he said live from AU at first. Oh. I was very confused, so. oh, wow. but he he gave he, he corrected it. Oh yeah, yeah. Say, he's got to pull up real quick. What's up? <laughs> I was uh, I was worried. I mean, if it's not New York, I'm extremely concerned. Um, <laughs> but but Logan, please tell us about your experience. I know we had a break uh, oh, yeah. last week, but yeah, well, what's been going on in your life? So like. A week ago today, actually, my cousin, um, she's actually my second cousin, but my oldest first cousin's oldest daughter, um, she's 20, one of my, you know, like a little sister to me, she came to town uh, for the last week. So we've kind of been wandering around, like there's a lot of outdoors things to do here. And she had bought the ticket when things were pretty cheap, kind of thinking, oh, maybe like in July things or in late June, things would be a little different, mid-June or whatever. So we've actually been wandering around just like, order and take out we ate ate on the ground a lot that was like a common thing just get take out sit on a curb and eat our meal or whatever um but she hadn't been to the bay area so it was a lot of fun but like juneteenth and uh friday saturday we were still pretty active um i i got to see the the side of the car that angela davis was in um i didn't get to see her speak but she was at a protest here um, got to see Boots Riley speak, which was pretty neat. Um, Michael did, Michael um, Brown Sr. was there. Um, some of Oscar Grant's family, which is a famous case in the Bay Area here, which, you know, it's kind of, you know, kind of sad that we are listening to some of these people due to the circumstances, but really interesting to hear some of their perspectives. I'll probably talk a little bit more about some of the protests, but that's kind of where I've been at um, this last week or two weeks or however long it's been since I've talked to everybody. Good. <laughs> Very good, Logan. Uh, happy that you were able to spend some time with a family. Danielle, uh, as, I, as I can see, the move has been successful or you just you, uh, had a different section of your house as a background. But I think it's more of the move, if anything. Congratulations. How has that been? Yes, I am now back home in the state of Maryland. Um, Different part. I'm living in Baltimore now, so that's been fun. Uh, just adjusting to being in an actual city versus being in Berrien Springs. Um, you know, like that's a blessing. There's more than three stoplights. Yo, Nixon size every time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, um, whatever. I'll wait till it's my turn. <laughs> like, I mean, honestly, there's more than three stoplights because they just added a new one a few weeks ago. So, um, you know, there's full, there's neighbors, there's noise, things are open late. I can have food delivered to me. It's great. Um, that plus just figuring out, setting up the apartment, trying to get everything homey. Um, so yeah, it's been good so far. All the moving things. All that fun moving. All that fun moving. Well, glad you made over safe, uh, safely. I know it could probably be a little tricky moving during COVID. So we're just definitely happy that everything else was uh, able to go smoothly. Um, I definitely noticed that when Danielle was explaining Barian Springs in vivid detail, we had our own Barian Springs product on the show, reacting. <laughs> so, Mike, I love the T-shirt. Was that a Father's Day gift? No, I, I got this before Father's Day, but thanks. I actually did get a Father's Day shirt gift. Um I, I would have wore it, but I wore it on Sunday and, you know, I'm trying to do better with hygiene and all that. So 
I, I let that rock. But shout out to uh, weird joke. Shout out to uh, Tasty and Noah for copying me that shirt. It's actually really dope. Um, I may show a picture of it later. But uh, yeah, you know, I, I've had a I had a wonderful week last week here in the booming metropolis of Bering Springs, Michigan. Uh, you know. Uh, as Tassiana calls it, a sunny place for shady people. Um, but uh, <laughs> not my joke. But uh, yeah, you know, it's you know, it's been wow. real. It's been fun. Um, you know, it's not as you know. Last time I was on, we had some action. There was a there was a march in the town, and so you know, there was civilization. It's like, oh, there's a lot of people who actually live here. Cool. Uh, but we're back to status quo, and you know, living the the Barian Dream. Very good, very good. Uh, and the Barian Dream is one that everyone would love to live. Um, so I'm glad everyone is doing well today. I have to say, uh, these past few weeks have been pretty good, definitely up and down because we're in a pandemic. And I also uh, realized that back in my apartment. Wait, are we still in a pandemic though? I thought it was over. What happened? No, it's, it's definitely over. Yeah, for sure. Over. I'm just just checking. I don't know, but we can uh, continue. Been over Sorry. for me for a while. The white people ended that thing in like first week of April. <laughs> <laughs> you said it, not us. You said it, not us. <laughs> Amen. We protested it, and it was done. The pandemic was scared, and it ran away. And went, so we're <laughs> I started in Michigan. Hey, PR Michigan, <laughs> we got you all. See, I, what I love though is that Mike is a Barrier Springs product and all the people that were protesting at the Capitol are Barrier Springs or Michigan products too. So I'm just yeah. glad that you guys can all be grouped together yep. you know, without any context one. available. It's really interesting. <laughs> yeah, zero context. There are also That's the people perfect. emailing uh, Nixon when he does the podcast and uh, mad at him. So that's always fun. In inclusion. Inclusion. That's great. It's great. Good. So we're back here again for another episode. I'm so glad that everyone is doing well here at Affirmative Interaction. And we're very thankful for all of you that have joined us. I know we were gone last week, but we are back in full force. I do want to say that Garrison and Simone were not able to make it today. Uh, thankful for all your prayers. Uh, their family is doing very well. They're just taking some much needed time off. So Black Lives Matter is still going strong. These protests are still going strong. I actually saw a Facebook post earlier today with, uh, I think it was in maybe Missouri, if I'm remembering correctly, but it was just a ton of people um, rolling down the street in rollerblades as like a rollerblades protest, which is very creative. I doubt it was in Missouri. I'm just going to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> I really I'm doubt Google it. Search and, uh, and correct myself, but anyhow, Danielle, I know that there are some things in the Black Lives Matter movement that you want to make sure people are aware of and people don't lose sight of. And we're just going to talk a little bit about, I would say, even, you know, how do we stay focused on so many different things at once when it really feels like now more than ever that everything is important and everything needs immediate attention. It can be a uh, really tricky. So Danielle, why don't you start us off and, and tell us your thoughts about that? Yeah, for sure. Um, some things that uh, in the social media sphere have been talked about over the past few weeks have been how black women and black uh, 
trans and gender non-conforming folks have virtually been uh, silenced uh, or even erased to some extent from the movement. We're not hearing their voices. We're not um, including them in this where there's like alarming rates of violence against uh, black trans and gender non-conforming people. Uh, they mentioned, I believe it was like 27 deaths in 2019. And then already in the six months we've had of 2020, we've had 14 transgender non-conforming people who were fatally shot or killed, uh, but there's no outcry over that violence. And that violence isn't always police violence, just like mm. the deaths that we are crying out about are not always police violence. You know, Ahmad Arbery wasn't shot by police, he was shot by neighbors former police to some extent, some police affiliation, but still civilians. And right. uh, civilians are those shooting uh, black trans folks. You know, there was a few days after George Floyd, maybe like two days even, uh, Tony McDade, Tony McDade was yeah. killed uh, by police. And that's a few days after Floyd. Uh, June 1st, a trans woman in uh, Minneapolis uh, well, in St. Paul, uh, so not far from the Black Lives Matter protests that were going on, she was beaten by a mob of cisgendered, 10 cisgendered men and women, you know? So as Black people are, you know, shouting that Black Lives Matter, there's a huge segment of Black lives that we're forgetting. And then I know I've seen this a lot too, the fact that Breonna Taylor's, uh, the cops who killed her still have not, there's been no one arrested. There's been no like movement in that case. And it's been like, what, a hundred days. Um, and it's just Black Lives Matter was founded by three black women, you know, one of whom identifies as queer and who built this as a movement to be inclusive and intersectional of race, gender, sexual orientation but as the movement has grown, it's really focused primarily on black, cisgendered, uh, heterosexual men, you know, to the extent that we know. And so I think that it's important for us to kind of discuss what our Black Lives Matter movement looks like if we're not including or not hearing the voices of all black people. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, I have to say, I mean, it's definitely been, I, I would say, even more eye-opening to me because I really had to like take a step back and realize that when a lot of my friends were using the hashtags, you know, Black Trans Lives Matter, I have to say I felt a bit of shame, and I think it's it's the good kind of shame because I'm thinking I really wish I had that in mind right when you know people, we started protesting, right? When we started to make calls to action. And I think me as just as a, as a black cisgender man, I need to constantly um, re, that's what I wanna look for here. I need to always remember to support all of black people, all people in the LGBTQ plus community with the same amount of tenacity that I support Black Lives Matter. Yeah. yeah I 
Go ahead, Nick. Sure. No, and th thank you so much for starting us off on this topic, Danny, and, and reminding us of how important this is. You know, and I think your your point is really well taken on on the fact that you know we can get lost in. And I don't want to say lost because I think obviously talking about you know police brutality and police involved violence towards black bodies is super important because there's just a heightened standard of professionalism that we expect from those persons and so those situations definitely do uh shock the conscience but um i think your point is really well taken that it isn't always police involved killings and when it comes to uh the black trans populations op oftentimes it's not um one of, one of the things that we reawakened me to this, you know, really this epidemic uh, was, um, you know, a basketball player on on the Knicks, which is which is a team that I, I sadly follow. His name is uh, Reggie Bullock, and um, he had two transgender sisters and they were both victims of violence. They're both killed you know, probably within the span of like a couple of years. One of them happened before he was on the team. And then during earlier during this season, his other sister was killed. And um, so he was talking a lot, you know, on his social media and even in interviews with people around the team around how crazy this is and how, how you know, devastating it is, not just for his family, but how this really is an epidemic that we're not paying attention to. Um, and and so it, it was just a reminder to me that um you know black lives can't matter unless black trans lives matter unless you know gay persons who are black lives matter i mean it, and as much as it is and and i see you know there's a, a comment shout out to delroy for watching the show saying black trans lives are included in black lives matter right and i, I agree with that but we could kind of fall into the same trap of, well, aren't black lives included in all lives matter. And so even while we are, you know, being particular and specific about the need for black lives to matter, we have to be intersectional in our thinking and understand that there are segments of the black population that are under attack in a much at a much higher rate. And we have to talk about it more in specific language, because if not, it can just get washed over in the broader movement. Um, and so the other quick thing I'll share is, um, you know, I, I just want to say I'm super proud of um, Eliel Cruz. He's an alum of Andrews. Some of you all know him. Um, he organized a, a march for Black Trans Lives in New York City. Uh, I think it was last week in response to uh, the death of Laylene Polanco, uh, who was a trans woman who was in Rikers, which should have been shut down years ago, but it continues to be open, uh, was essentially dying in her cell. And the there's a video of the uh, the guards at Rikers just kind of looking in and laughing at her as she's dying, you know? And then she, of course, ends up uh, dying and um, the footage got released. And um, he's an alum of Andrews, L.E.L. And he um, put together this, and he's been an advocate for uh, the trans community, the LGBTQ community more broadly for a while. Um, and it was amazing to me to see him uh, co-organize an event that big. And we'll maybe talk about this when we talk about the Supreme Court opinion a bit more in the church's response, but it's sad that we don't oftentimes highlight and affirm 
the fact that we have folks from our community that are doing such groundbreaking work on behalf of folks who are so often forgotten. So I was super proud to see his involvement in that. And it was a reminder to me again, that we just have to keep speaking specifically out on, you know, these, this epidemic, cause it's really crazy what's been happening within the community. Yeah, I was, I was just gonna say, um, like it, it, it's pretty alarming um, to kind of piggyback off of what Danny and um, Nixon are saying for a number of reasons. I think um, what we saw on social media, kind of like the conflict within black conversations and spaces um, between not wanting to feel divided, um, not wanting to create like a quote unquote gender war in the midst of a moment where there should be some form of solidarity um, but I, I remember having that conversation with Esther um, just about how you cannot remove the, the intersectionality of constructs in, in this conversation. You, you simply can't. And I think uh, when we look at the fact that many of the hashtags are, are male dominated, um, it does reveal um, the, the amount of control that men have on the narrative of the movement. And, and, and that's one thing. The, the second thing is it's important to, for us to be cognizant of the fact that the mere fact that we have to remind ourselves of Breonna Taylor should tell us that there is a problem. It, and I think that that is yeah. something that, that doesn't get really processed enough. Um, and I think what's even more crazy is her story in some ways feels the most absurd. Like she was in her bed sleeping. And that I think, you know, when, when we really break down the story, the more we think about it, like th the crazier her her unfortunate situation is. And, and I think, you know, we could go a step further and look within the LGBT community. I don't know if, as much of the oppression that Black people have faced, uh, it's another conversation to really reconcile with the fact that I don't know if, and I'm speaking directly to the the Black community, you know, and I, I can imagine that there are other, obviously other races that are maybe dealing with it, but I don't know if the Black community per se has fully allowed non-cisgender people to be human. Mm -hmm. I, I think that is a very difficult conversation yeah. that, rooted within uh, just the, the culture uh, wherever you go, but within the, the black community that it, it is a very difficult uh, uh, lens to try to get through. And it becomes very um, tense and it becomes very defensive. And, and the, the possibility of saying, listen, if you truly want to believe that we are all created in the image of God, we can't leave these people out. We we and I remember reading, I just finished How to Be an Anti-Racist, and he talks about how the the life expectancy of black trans women is 35 years old. Yeah. That is insane. If this wow. was if this was to any gender or any sexuality outside of this, this would be on the front page news regardless of where you went. And I think that is what is frightening. We need to realize, and I'm glad that uh, Ibram X. Kennedy, he pointed out, 
you you simply cannot say you are an advocate for black lives when your phobia gets in the way for people in the LGBT community. You you cannot because you you are putting up oppressive barriers and and it it's it makes the movement stagnant. It, it makes it hard for our country to progress in a more inclusive way. Um, and I think, you know, we'll, we'll get into that later on when we talk about the Supreme Court, but I think the, the biggest reason is, I think one of the, the biggest stains or one of the biggest stains I would say is the way we have allowed our theology surrounding this topic to be ingrained in our culture to the point where even if you are not a practicing Christian, the the evangelical Protestant values on where they may traditionally stand on the idea of, of non-cisgender, it, it is ingrained in your culture. And that I think is a barrier that we also need to, to just kind of, you know, keep breaking through because it's scary, man, 35 years old. Yeah. I, I, I was stunned. So I, I love Delroy Brooks's question. Um, he says, I wonder who is in charge of the movement? Who are the gatekeepers? And I actually want to just turn to Logan because I know Logan had an experience that could really answer this question in a very informed way. Logan, uh, take it away for us. Yeah, for sure. And I appreciate that question. It's an important one. And it's actually one that I find really commonly myself asking as people talk about Black Lives Matter and they say things that don't align with the movement. And this movement has a website. It has readily available not only a website, but resources. It has education. It has ways to donate, ways to learn, ways to understand. And it talks very clearly. And I can, I can actually read directly. We make space for transgender brothers and sisters to participate and lead. We are self-reflexive and do the work required to dismantle cisgender privilege and uplift black trans folk, especially black trans women, and continue to be disproportionately impacted by trans antigenistic violence. Like, this, this is literally from the website. So, you know, we could say, like, who's the gatekeepers or whatnot, but no, we need to be informed about the movements. But, you know, I was at that protest I spoke at of where they literally closed down the ports in Oakland on Juneteenth and made sure that no, no, um, shipping was happening in and out of the ports of Oakland. That was so dope, like amazing. It was organized by a, um, a union group um, here in Oakland that's a very active union group. And uh, unfortunately, that, that protest was organized by a group of men. And I say unfortunately because they had Angela Davis speak, which was you know obviously incredible to bring in a person that you know identifies herself as you know an activist not only that, but wants to dismantle all these systems within our society. And if you haven't, maybe I should link it. She does a little clip on a podcast where she identifies what she is and she just goes down a list of things. It's really neat to hear all the areas in which she feels uh, entertained by and interested in. And and, and this uh, protest, it traveled through Oakland and it stopped outside the police department. And that's actually kind of where I had picked up with it. And then it moved to City Hall. And City Hall, they had open mic, well, not open mic, but they had scheduled speakers. And, you know, right away, it was really dope. We, we got to hear some of the leaders of the union. We got to hear Boots Riley. If you don't know who that is, he directed Black Klansman. Um, he's an activist in the conversation. Um, Michael Brown Sr., who was Michael Brown's father, was there. Uh, Oscar Grant, who was, uh, if you've seen the movie uh, Fruitvale Station um, with Michael B. Jordan, that was Oscar Grant. He was uh, murdered by police back in, like, 2000. 
11. I'm not don't get that those uh numbers. But yeah, a while ago and his his uncle was there, his his aunt was there. Really great people, but of the 12 speakers that spoke, the first 12, they had um 10 of them were black men. One of them was a black woman and one of them was a white man that was a part of the union as well. And so as you can imagine, this conversation started to go from affirmation of these, you know, beautiful voices that were speaking but but then a with a megaphone just like lifted it up and said where are the black women where are the queer voices where are the trans voices like where are these people that are supposed to be and and we and i'm not saying supposed to be a part of the conversation black lives matter was created by three black women uh one of them being queer non-binary like this is an important part of the conversation they set this up and so you know as you can imagine they said hey you know we're the 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 leader i'll quote him and he said hey we're bringing the sisters out soon like they're gonna be here and so you know they kind of settled down and three high school um students came out and spoke one was from milwaukee and two were from the area you know and they had they were all women they they were headed to college it was very empowering what they had to say and then we shuffled right back into the long list of black men and as you can imagine the conversations between the crowd and the organizers were getting a little um you know back and forth it was i, I wouldn't say heated but one had a microphone and one had a megaphone and they were back and forth back and forth <laughs> to the point that a trans woman went on stage and said like, basically, uh, I only know this because we talked to her, but she was saying, please, like, we want to speak. We love what you're doing, but you, you need our voices. We're important, we're valuable. And after about maybe five to 10 minutes of her being on stage, she walked back into the audience and said, queer voices aren't welcome here. And that, and we, you know, the, the one of my friends that was with, you know, he engaged with her and said, wait, what do you mean? And she said, well, we went there and they didn't want to hear us speak, so, we're leaving. And so, you know, we kind of left as a group, Our their group kind of joined with, with mine. We, we left, we came back, they gave her the opportunity to speak for a minute. And then the man came forward and this is kind of where, like a great example of miseducation, the organizer said, what is the problem? We let bro speak, which he was now, had misgendered this, this trans woman. It was, uh, oh, no. and then the whole audience just lets out a really big like groan and booing and, you know, the man is there and he's like, what did I do? And, you know, it was like, this is why. And and he was saying, if you wanted to speak, you should have reached out. And, you know, other people were like, no, you should reach out. If you're planning an inclusive event, this isn't about who is the gatekeeper, but this is about like Oakland literally has, I get it if you're in Berrien Springs to a degree, Oakland has an LGBTQ resource center. Like that's where most of the LGBT rallies start. You can call them and say, hey, we would like women queer and trans voices to speak out and we would like them to help lead our movement. And, you know, to speak to, to just uh, Adrian's point of 35 years old is the average age, but 50% is the mortality rate. And they, these people are either murdered or they're bullied into suicide. Those like, or silenced. I mean, these statistics are not like here to say like, Oh, this is sad. This is a, an, a, a terrible tragedy that we're allowing to happen mm -hmm. by not saying to these people, you're valuable, join us at our table. Because the, the conversation that we keep hearing of privilege is saying, not are you at the table, but are you giving up your seat to make sure voices are heard? White man speaking at the rally, black man speaking at the rally. Are you saying, hey, my voice can be at the end of the docket because these voices need to be lifted up at the beginning to show our, you know, coming together to show our solidarity with these communities because this conversation 
is so important. It is literally life and death. As we talk about mm -hmm. abolishing police, we have to abolish homophobia within our communities. And yeah. this goes across the board. And the reason we say Black Trans Lives Matters is because they are the most suffered group. They are the group that is harmed the most. They are, they are murdered the most at the highest disproportionate rates. And so when we talk about least of these theology, we have to talk about least of these people. And we have mm. to give them the opportunity to have a voice, to have the opportunity to, to speak out on that. And, you know, I saw it firsthand and it was, you know, I was with my cousin who's from Missouri, you know, grew up, you know, very just like new to this whole conversation was like, wow, it's so clear that these, these people need to be heard because no one's listening to them. Even the rally coordinators were like, and it was bad. Like there was, there was lots of disgruntled people on that stage when that woman, that trans woman got on stage and spoke because they didn't want it. They're, they're, it was clear that the voice wasn't welcome. And you know, that, that stuff it has to end, especially when we're talking about activism and, and trying to progress forward. But yeah, I um first of all, that's insane that that happened at a protest that blatantly and that all of that came out in that moment. It's insane that it's also like kind of embarrassing almost. Like I like it feels shameful. But I think some of what makes this so complicated and why black men in particular get so at least often online it appears get very defensive when this conversation is brought up is because the truth is that black women and black trans women and black uh, members of the LGBT community are not just victims at the hands of white people. Oftentimes it's black men yeah. that are causing yeah. the harm. And I think that's what makes the conversation so painful, especially in the midst of the Black Lives Matter movement, because you're, you're trying to balance the two things of like, okay, we are fighting white supremacy. We are talking out, like we're talking out at other people. But once you start to include these voices, you also have to recognize like, it's not just outward. Like there are things happening within the community too that come from outward ideas of like white supremacist ideals and like evangelism, like all of that stuff, but that are being inflicted on us, on black women, on black LGBTQ people by other black people. And I think that's also what makes people within the movement, especially women so angry is because while women are at the forefront of a lot of these movements, like the three women who started it, like it was black women who started it, but also like a bunch of these local chapters are headed by black women. Like they didn't just start it. Yeah. They've been pushing it and doing the work for the past like however many years, like six, seven years. And at the same time, like knowing that all the work, the movement, everything is not as being focused mostly on black men and also having to reconcile that with the reality that like while we are fighting white supremacy we're also fighting misogyny from black men we're also fighting homophobia and transphobia from black men so it's like we're, we're on the front lines fighting for you but then like we're also having to protect ourselves from you at the same mm -hmm. time mm -hmm. and it's, it's just a it's a difficult conversation to have and it's painful for for everybody involved and i just i, I think that's just what makes it it's like you have to reconcile with like, I am a victim in this, but I'm also like, I, I'm a perpetrator in this too. If I don't, if I don't um, like reconcile my own inner issues that I have against other people. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I think that I agree with everything you've been saying, Esther. And I think that also brings up again that the necessity of intersectionality in our movements uh, because of the fact that black, the black community is not just one thing. You know, like black people are very diverse. Uh, black people are, uh, are part of various other communities. And so, mm -hmm. Being of different classes, different genders, different sexual orientations, all of those things impact how we experience oppression. So a cisgendered black heterosexual male who is middle class will not have the same experience as a, a gender non-conforming black teenager from a working class, more uh, church-based family. Like, that's a different, completely different experience, but all still facing the, the, the oppressions of society in different ways. And so I think that what has happened with the movement, but we also saw this with uh, the civil rights movement even, is that the push for racial equality and racial justice is put at the forefront at the expense of all of the other things that also matter in creating a space for black people to flourish in this country. And so even then, you know, like black men attained the right, to, like in history, black men attained the right to vote before black women, you know, uh, the ability of black men to have access to work is different than the ability of black women. Uh, black men get paid more than black women. So all of these things, even within an oppressed people group, you have the privilege of being a black, cisgendered, heterosexual male that makes you also in a space where within our movements, black men have to have the consciousness and humility to be able to say, you know, it's not just about racial justice, but it's about racial justice for these other groups of people who are just as vital. Because like, I feel like we've said this on the podcast before that like these movements don't happen without black women. Yeah. You know? yeah. um, and like the ability of our black communities to be able to take care of the people who are trans and gender non-conforming and just all, especially like teenagers and young people, the rates of homelessness for LGBTQ teens also are alarming uh, because of families being not accepting. Mm -hmm. And so those kids are experiencing even more layers of oppression from not just their own family, like their own communities, but from their own families. And so I think that as a community and as a movement, we definitely have to step up um, and realize that everyone's experience is different. I think even on the podcast, like all of us grew up in different families, different kinds of black families. Some of them were Caribbean black families. Some of them were American black families. Some of them were white families. Some of them were a mix of the, of the two. Some of us grew up in larger cities. Some of us grew up in smaller towns. And so all of those things, impact the way oppression the same oppression is experienced in each of our lives you know um esther and i are women so that is a difference as well 
And so I think that the more cognizant we are of the fact that we are no one thing, that we are all people carrying different layers um, of identity, the better. It would make our movement stronger and it would make our movement more effective. Yeah, um, I think, you know, one of the things that you you notice that kind of what Esther was saying, there there is like this defense mechanism that kind of pops up when there is a, a call for some kind of accountability toward black men, regardless of like what the the conversation is. And it's like a very similar response that you see from any minority group um, that has some form of like majority in their identity where it's like, there's no way I can be like, like a racist or have a, a phobia mentality towards a group because I experience racism, I experience oppression, I, I have experienced discrimination. And I think sometimes we sometimes make the mistake in assuming that oppression kind of removes all blind spots in, in our life experience, but that's not really the case. And, and we, we have like a, a what, what I've seen happen quite often throughout social media is a need to kind of like remove yourself from the conversation. Uh, you know, we'll, you'll see a lot of men say, that's not me. And, and then their response kind of warrants a type of uh, like tone policing as to how the rhetoric gets put out uh, because they don't want to be included in this group of individuals that are harming uh, a particular demographic. And I think that, and while you may say, yeah, I am living my life normal, healthily, I am trying to, to admire, love, and respect women as a whole. But the problem is it, it's irresponsible in some ways. And you kind of take away a level of empathy that you can have when you keep trying to remove yourself out of a demographic that you're a part of, where you keep saying, that's not me, that's not me, that's not me. Because what happens is you you kind of take away the opportunity for you to be a good listener, to be an active listener. So when there is a moment where you may be doing something that is problematic, you don't give yourself the opportunity to learn because you've convinced yourself that you've had all the growth you can. And that I think is a fundamental uh, a growing experience that I think a lot of men um, have to really wrestle with. There will always be room for improvement. And you may be an ally right now, um, but you know, as, as I'm reading, uh, when I was reading uh, Kendi, he makes a great point. You, you cannot fundamentally say that you are always anti-racist because there will be moments where yeah. you may say something that's racist. You may, yeah. you, may right. you may support something, you may retweet something, you may you may say something outwardly that uh, promotes a racist policy. My, my, my. And I think the same thing can be applied to, to retweets, to transphobia, to, to sexism, to misogyny. You have to realize that there will always be a moment where you can use it as as a growth opportunity and yeah. to not allow yourself to shut down and assume that because in your mind, on your checklist, you've done and met the criteria of being an ally, that means yeah. you have, you know, a white flag over you, but that's just not the case. Mm. No, 
That's really good. And it's really interesting as you say that about, you know, where you fit into a racist mindset. You know, I, I've been to lots of protests. And one of the first things you hear at a protest is say his name, George Floyd, say his name, George Floyd. And then you hear say her name, Breonna Taylor. And if you do just like a quick research on the hashtag say her name, it was, it was um, founded uh, by the African-American Policy Forum in 2014 because they felt that women were not being spoken about within the conversation of murders by police. And so they said, mm. we want to start something to say the names of these women. And now even that conversation is being at the forefront of we're starting it with say his name. Now this doesn't discredit, that's the thing a lot about these things. Like this doesn't discredit the conversation about George Floyd, but this, ha we have to bring light to say. And you know, when I saw that, I was like, oh shoot, I've been saying something that has been um, maybe champion to be about something that it wasn't started to be about. They have kind of taken this and, and you know, I'm still going to obviously chant George Floyd and I'm obviously going to chant Tony McDade and, you know, the Ahmaud Arby, the every name that we, that we keep talking about within that. And let's not make light. I believe that I've seen the statistic that since um, 2020 started, like we're up to like 36 black people, black bodies have been killed at the hands of police. So like there are lots of names to say, let's not confuse this. But in intersectionality, we have to say like, these movements are created to bring a voice to the voiceless. That's the most important part. It's not about, is this happening to all these different groups? It's, it's, it's we have to bring awareness to let people know that this is happening at so many more levels than just kind of where we had it. And, you know, they were talking within the church and that's a whole other conversation about intersectionality that we are terrible about. But just to like pry into that a little bit and stop saying African-Americans when you're referring to black people, like that's just like the basic form. Uh, I keep hearing this from white. We're talking about say her name and trans lives matter. Like that's deep. But like, I'm still hearing like leaders in our church be like, well, my African-American brothers and sisters. I'm like, well, a lot of those are black people, but you know, I'm not gonna have this conversation with you while you're talking in front of the church pulpit. Um, but intersectionality can start at the very smallest like areas and move. Can I say yeah, black? Please. Is that okay? Am I allowed to? Like Dan Jackson looking over there. Hey, where are we at with that? Did you get an you email back from Nixon yet? Oh man, I did it. Uh, next topic. <laughs> <laughs> next topic. So we're uh, so glad that you all have joined us. Uh, whether you're black or not, we welcome you on the show. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, Joshua Shelton, Sebastian, shout out, Hannah Bata, Pedrito Reed, Delroy Brooks, who has been killing it in the comments. And thank you, Bill Cork, for some of the comments you made too. And sh shout out to Vanessa Cordero. She was my favorite English professor at Andrews. Thank you for joining us in our show. We're really happy to have you guys. So we're gonna transition now into our next topic. And that is the decision made by the Supreme Court regarding L the LGBTQ plus community and discrimination uh, in the workplace in employment. Mm -hmm. um, and I love this topic because it really leads in smoothly to what we were just talking about before, because now we get to see how this is a way, um, I'll say this, the, this happening has been the result of people plugging in and making sure they 
they promote LGBTQ plus voices. And this hopefully is something that will continue. And Mike, please just tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, for sure. Happy to. Um, so yeah, it was the Bostock B V Clayton County case um, that was ruled on uh, last week in the Supreme Court. And uh, essentially the Supreme Court held that federal law title seven in particular prohibits employment discrimination against LGBTQ workers. Uh, and so just to sort of lay it out, uh, there's a pretty critical five sentence piece of the majority opinion, which was written by uh, Trump appointee Neil Gorsuch. Uh, I don't know that the president was too excited about what uh, Neil wrote, but he wrote it nonetheless. And um, this sort of sums up the court, the majority opinion of the court's thought process. It was a 6-3 decision, which I think is a pretty important point as well. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, Justice Gorsuch said this, in Title VII, Congress outlawed discrimination in the workplace on the basis of race, color, religion, sex, or national origin. Today, we must decide whether an employer can fire someone simply for being homosexual or transgender. The answer is clear. An employer who fires an individual for being homosexual or transgender fires that person for traits or actions it would not have questioned in members of a different sex. Sex plays a necessary and undistinguishable role in the decision exactly what Title VII forbids. And so that's really the whole conversation there in a nutshell. Um, Vox has a really good um, explainer on it. Uh, so I just put that in the comments for folks who, who want to read more. Um, and, and so another thing I'll say, um, and this happens every time the Supreme Court rules on one of these kinds of cases, or just a case in general, is that oftentimes people forget that the Supreme Court, um, they're, they, they've historically tried to make sure that their uh, opinions and decisions are narrowly construed. So they're not, you know, answering questions that are not before the court. So they're not thinking about every hypothetical or every, you know, slippery slope scenario that you, you'll see legal pundits talk about that, oh, well, if they rule this way, then what happens if these other seven things happen? Well, you know, you have to have a case or controversy in front of you. Uh, that's sort of, you know, kind of baseline, you know, uh, legal theory there before a court can rule on it. They don't do hypothetical, uh, you know, legislative opinions uh, about things that aren't in front of them yet. That That's not the role of the court. And so predictably, uh, a lot of conservative Christians in particular were extremely <laughs> upset about <laughs> this ruling. Uh, and, and a lot of those slippery slope scenarios were brought out. Well, what is this? Well, what's going to happen? You know, what is this? What is that? Uh, and so there's a couple important things to remember. Uh, so number one, uh, the the previously existing religious exemptions for, uh, you know, actual religious organizations, I think that's really important, that have a, a religious conviction to, and I'm just going to say what it is, they won't like this term, but to legally discriminate, because that's what they're doing, based on their religious conviction, um, that has still been recognized and reaffirmed by this opinion. You know, Gorsuch says as much in there. 
Um, but even still, there are folks that are, you know, really nervous that they're not going to be able to have this caveat to discriminate anymore. And um, I think that begs some some deeper questions. Um, so, so one of the things I'll say, and because I have a lot of thoughts, but I, I want to open it up to hear from you all. Um, one of the things that was partic particularly striking for me in thinking about, you know, because we're talking about the church's response to this as well. One of the things that was really interesting was the fact that uh, the NAD and the GC re re released a joint statement in response to this decision mere hours after it was announced. Um, and, and in that statement, essentially expressed their predictable disagreement with it, their thought that um, this is going to continue to be an attack on, um, you know, this is going to continue to be an attack on uh, their religious freedom and all these different, all these different kinds of things that I think are extremely overblown. Whereas, of course, um, it, it takes oftentimes, you know, multiple days, if not weeks, to just say three words, Black Lives Matter. And so uh, that, that's always interesting th that, um, you know, one person who was talking to me said, well, they likely had, you know, something in the drafts. They knew that this was coming. And it was like, well, you know, I, I don't know that you've been paying attention, but um, the, the sad irony is that there's likely going to be another police-involved killing coming. So get something in the drafts for that. I mean, you know, be ready for that. You know what I'm saying? Um, so, yeah, I thought that the church's response was it was ill-advised. It was it was unnecessary. Um, but hey. You know, that, that's what they decided to do. That's how they decided to approach it. Um, and so it, it, I think that for folks who are, you know, either connected to our church or, or sort of on the fringes of that, um, you know, who are in the LGBTQ community, it was just another example of an unnecessary targeting and degrading of their personhood um, and, and, and does not bode well for, uh, folks like me who are trying to move things in the other direction and 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 create more inclusion and equity, uh, it seems like their focus is in the opposite direction, which is sad. Um, but yeah, that's the that's the case, and and I'd love to hear other thoughts on it. Um, I'm definitely one. I'm definitely glad that this was something passed on the Supreme Court level because then it would motivate change on the local level. Um, there are many local municipalities that don't include sexual orientation or gender identity in their anti-discrimination laws. Um, and knowing that this could be a motivator for more of those, because just even the concept of someone being fired, like because of their gender identity or sexual orientation, is just insane to me. That's exactly like someone being fired because of their race or because they're an immigrant or because of a number of things that we already include in anti-discrimination laws. So I'm really excited to see the possible change that could come on the local level. Um, but I also didn't expect anything different from the response of the church. I don't think that in any type, in any way, the church has responded very well to the LGBTQ 
plus community. Um, and so, and there's always been this fear when talking about um, the queer community, this fear that somehow allowing humans to be themselves will, will somehow infringe on someone's ability to connect with God or to be a church. And so uh, these things are not correlated, but somehow uh, history has enabled religious organizations to correlate them. And uh, it's unfortunate because just as they're shouting for religious liberty and religious freedom, likewise, the LGBTQ plus community in the US is looking for civil liberties and civil freedoms to just be able to keep a job, to be able to not be discriminated against when they go to the doctor. Like basic things like healthcare and yeah. housing and it's just kind of like, as a community, a faith community that cares so much about like promoting the character of God and showing this world the character of God, uh, statements like this are a reminder of how little we really know about the character of God. Speak to that. My God. Yeah, it's uh, pretty disappointing, I guess. I continually, I, I think I'm probably different than leaders of our church. I, I actually know people that exist that want to be within these communities and also Christian. Um, and I guess whenever you put yourself in such a homophobic position, nobody's going to reach out to you. So I am the one that finds the burden of this, of telling people, regardless of what this church is saying, God still loves you and God still wants you and God still treasures you. And so, yeah, this whole, um, I, I just am sick of the church making stances that I have to then tell people aren't really what all of us think and believe. And they keep building walls. You know, I'm going to... Um, uh, I'm going to keep uh, like pushing into those conversations and, and like fight back on it. But I'm honestly sick of it. I'm honestly sick of engaging in private pastor groups on Facebook where I have to go back and forth with men about how they think it's terrible that gay people want to like exist in the church. Um, like I'm sick of, all of this and if you're wondering like i'm a person that has connections to the church i've pastored in churches but when i'm getting to the point where i'm like yo i'm really over this uh, people that are way less connected to the church um are gonna be have already been like gone they're they're out they're like why would i be in this space you've already like a church honestly just, just to like put this into layman's ter terms a church shouldn't be a body of an institution of or a body of believers that makes you regularly cry mm. like that shouldn't mm. be a conversation just to put that on a human level like a, a church oh, yeah. shouldn't make an announcement that takes puts you to your knees to say could i be welcome there like a church shouldn't have people in its in its lobbies and and in its pulpits and in its leadership saying to you your existence isn't relevant enough and important enough for us to allow you to interact with our children or to you know do any of the the normal functioning things like people shouldn't be crying because you know who should be crying 
abusers should be crying because their churches won't let them come. Pedophiles should be crying because their churches won't let them come. You know, people that are taking advantage of other people should be the ones that are upset because their church bought them a three avian satellite dish instead of giving them the opportunity to continue ruining the lives of their people not the people that are simply wanting to better their communities you know someone asked me in a group would you let a you know a queer person lead in your church and i was like well i would let them come i would let them get baptized and i would let them lead um not because of their their gender but because they want to give people what jesus's love looks like that's my question my question isn't like what your identity is my question is what do you want to do for this church to better this community if your question is i want to turn everyone into something then i'm going to say none of you are welcome here if i want like to hate people from coming here like none of the conversation isn't about you know who i let lead it's about why they want to be here in the first place and if you want to be here for the same reason this church exists then we want you here but i'm so sick of yeah, I'll say names. Ted Wilson making these statements that's making our jobs not only harder, but us wanting to leave them because we don't feel like these people will ever feel safe. We're becoming um, this group that hates people to the degree of race. Our homophobia is becoming historical like racism to where, you know, like black people are jaded to the point that they're like not trusting white people. LGBT people are seeing the church as like, this is an untrustable group. We can't interact there. They don't want us. And I'm honestly, that's like, just for me, I just am sick of that conversation over and over and over again. Yeah, I, um, I think the church just needs to start being honest with itself. Like, I think right now they're trying to walk this line. Like, I didn't read the whole statement but from what i remember it started off with like a whole spiel about how like we you really support like the lives of gay like they started off am i wrong about that that that's how it started off about no. how much we love the lgbt oh, yeah, we love everybody i think that the church just needs to honestly be very honest with itself and say that they actually do they do not want they don't want them in the community yeah. like that that's that's honestly what it is on a very mm-hmm personal level when you talk to many church members and the opinions they have and also on a broader broader structural level of how afraid they are of this community having just like basic rights and i'm just gonna plug um an article i'll put it in the comments probably a lot of people have already read it but it was written by my little sister where she essentially is just like she asked a really important question at the end which is like if the if the basic human rights of a group of people are threatening to the institution, to the church, like, like what is the church doing? Like, what, what does that say about the institution itself? Like, how can you say you're championing the gospel and God's love for people while at the same time saying this group of people being granted the same protections that every other group in the country has is threatening to us? Those two things don't add up. And I just think the church needs to start to be very honest and start, needs to start reckoning with itself. Like, where do you want to stand? What side of history do you want to be on? Mm-hmm. And I honestly think that'll make it easier for a lot of people who are right now like stuck in this weird middle part section, like what you were explaining, Logan, to just make a decision. Like, I'm either going to be in or I'm going to be out. But like, I can't like, just yeah. be honest about about what you are about. Because right now you're not you're not being honest. What you're saying isn't matching what you're doing. And it's it's unfair and it's putting a lot of people like through a lot of pain. Yeah. And I think that what would you guys bring up a good point? And what I've seen from from like 
the, the crazy YouTube videos or the absurd tweets or, or the Facebook comments, there, there, there's a couple of things that I noticed. One, like I think Logan, like you kind of touched on it a bit where this idea of like, now we're gonna be forced to, to waver in our beliefs and allow people uh, to, to, to work in our denomination when it goes against our, our, our theology. The reality is, as far, as far as I know, people in the LGBT community, they are not lining up <laughs> to come work for that. Nah, nah, nah. Bro, facts. They don't want to be even worry about. Like, they, they are not desperately saying, can I please get this application so that I can be a pastor at this church? No, you you have made it very clear that they're not welcome. So this, 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 uh, this fear that you are creating is a non-issue. It's not even happening for you to even be worried about. The second yeah. thing I noticed is that there is this uh, uh, false interpretation of what Christ says in like standing firm, you know, with, with your beliefs. And I think people continue to mistake that where I see people making comments and tweets about, oh, if, if this country thinks they're going to now force me to, to bend my beliefs, they've got another thing coming. I'm going to stand firm. I will not waver. And that I think is the biggest problem with our church surrounding the, the conversation right now with the LGBTQ community. They are not allowing themselves for their theology to grow with love at the center. And they have confused the idea that I will not waver. This, this hyper-fundamentalist approach to their theology, they think that that this is something that makes them good Christians. This, this idea that I will not budge on the idea that my theology on this topic can grow in some ways. I, I will not even uh, uh, consider the possibility that my theology can can blossom into something better. I will not even, uh, you know, consider the the idea that maybe we're on the wrong side of history right now. No, they they are are indoctrinated every single week. Where you've got pastors finding some way to throw in some homophobia comment in any sermon that they're preaching every single Saturday. And from the moment you are born up until now, it's just ingrained in you that whenever you feel this, this sense that something is bending in your faith, it's like, like an end time fulfillment over and over and over again. Like this, this, we knew this was going to happen. Y'all they're going to come for our beliefs. They're going to come for our rights. They're going to make have to worship on Sunday with the blue law. And when we go through this narrow vision of what we think Christ is saying, we, we give our theology no opportunity to grow. We, and, and that makes our faith have no opportunity to grow. And that makes our love for people have no opportunity to grow. And that I think is, is what's wrong with the response that I'm, I'm seeing from so many people. When you place so much limitations on the growth in your theology. You're placing limits on what you what you think that that God is trying to present to us right now. Like this was a perfect opportunity that I feel like God is like, listen, I'm giving y'all another like 
you know, is that like another keys to the kingdom right now where here's a great opportunity for you to, to finally come out and show true love and empathy for this. And you keep dropping the ball. And it's like, man, you, when, when you are that, that so what's the word I'm looking for? Like, like, uh, black and white, so rigid, so fundamentalist with, with your beliefs, man, you're putting limitations on God's love. When, when you think that God would be comfortable with this kind of outrage for someone wanting basic rights, nothing about that sounds godlike. And I don't blame people for saying this is not a God that sounds loving to me and they choose to go elsewhere. Mm. Yeah. I, completely agree with that. And something that uh, you said, Adrian, and also Esther made, reminded me of this website that I was looking at before called Church Clarity, because like churches being uh, ambiguous about their feelings um, and about the levels in which uh, members of the LGBTQ plus community can be involved in church life. Uh, that's something that spans like all Christian like denominations. And so this website, Church Clarity, was created so that uh, people in the LGBTQ community could find safe places to go and not get like bait and switched when they got into a church. Um, and it just shared stories like someone who went to some big mega church, like uh, non-denominational church in Atlanta, like got involved, started helping with greeters, wanted to get baptized, and they gave her the runaround um, because she was gay. And they were just like, well, we can't really baptize you, but you can still keep greeting. And it's just kind of like, no, like this person wants to get baptized and you're not going to baptize her. And it's just kind of- Greet the people they'll baptize, like, yeah, that's crazy. <laughs> But if someone knew that, like, if you could look on a website and see these are the safe churches to go to, these are the places where you can be fully welcome and accepted, where your identity isn't seen as, like, an affront to someone's theology or feelings or insecurities or whatever, uh, this is where you can go and not be tricked into being part of a community and then get hurt later because that's what happens. Like to say, like everyone's welcome, we love everybody. Uh, no, we don't. And then you don't treat people with love. Yeah. That's painful, and it's more than just like people who say, like, oh, well, everyone is human and we all make mistakes, but. Hating, like discriminating against uh, their identity isn't a mistake. That is an action that is done with intention. Yeah. And so yeah. um, I think that I'll try to post the Church Clarity website in the comments as well. Uh, and then also just kind of encourage people to look at that and see what things other, like genuinely affirming church spaces are doing. Yeah. Um, and how they do this because they also genu also generally have clear statements about anti-racism. So there are churches that have clear statements about justice and anti-racism and show like 
genuinely working towards that. And so yeah. I think it's important that with anything, but especially with our LGBTQ community, um, that like churches are clear about what they believe and what they have to say and not try to fill the church with bodies only to lose them after hurting them. Yeah. And I just no, want to so add quickly, cool. sorry, it just it's super quick. I just want to add quickly like that just makes me think like that should happen like on an institutional level of like churches making clear statements, but then it also has to happen of like, okay, what standard then do you hold your members to, to making this place welcoming? Because a church can say, you know, this is a safe space and their leadership could say, but you could sit in a pew next to somebody and have an extremely harmful and painful interaction. So I think it also needs to like, there needs to be some accountability on members too. That's a really good point. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I'd say a couple of quick things, you know, I think, I think the church needs to stop treating, um, you know, gender identity and, um, you know, who someone's attracted to, like it's an, like it's a disease that can be caught or, you know, a virus that's going to like, it's the coronavirus or something stupid like that. And, and that's a choice. Yeah. That, that's how the church um, operates in response to all of these things. Um, cause, cause that's, what's really rooted in that's what, well, that's what's at the root of the exclusion, right? It's that if if we if we include you know these persons, uh, then they're going to um, infect and poison um, you know our biblical view of relationships or whatever the case may be. Um, I mean, mind you that you know they're 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 scratching the bottom of the barrel to even find any kind of Bible verse that says anything about you know, the transgender population, you know, I mean, they're, they're, they're grasping at the straws of like some cross dressing stuff out of context. And it's just like, all right, y'all just need to shut up. Like the, the, the Bible's largely silent on this and um, you're trying to just make it fit into your personal bias. And so, um, so I think, so that's one thing, you know, this kind of ties into what Adrian was saying. I think I tweeted the other day that, um, were there to be yeah. folks in the LGBTQ population who wanted to work for an Adventist institution, that would like low key be a miracle. Like that would be, that wouldn't be a problem. That would be a good thing. That would mean that we actually mean what we say because, um, and this ties in with your question here, Mark. Uh, I think one of the important things to understand, because there was a statement on, um, as the church puts it, I'm using their words, the transgender issue, but they kind of backtracked on that and they've been trying to revamp it. And we don't really have something specific on that. But as it pertains to um, folks who are LGB, um, you know, alleged, well, where the church says it stands, um, you know, the GC has said that um, they make the distinction between uh, and this, again, is their wording orientation and what they would call behavior. So allegedly in the church circles, if someone who, for example, identifies as gay commits to what they call celibacy, then there's largely no issue from the church's perspective. You could even be a pastor and be someone who's openly gay and celibate. That's what they say. We know yeah. that's in, in certain, you know, 
I know of a, we all probably example. Know of an example just now the where that doesn't actually happen in practice. Um, so from the higher ed perspective, you know, at Andrews, um, you know, I always waver between speaking for myself and for Andrews. So I, I'd say that um, policy wise, again, someone who um, identifies as gay, um, you know, I guess as long as they commit to again what the church would call celibacy, again, it's not an issue. There's there should be no there'd be nothing wrong with that. Um, because of course there's no bar on membership or there's not supposed to be any bar on membership or involvement or anything like that within the church, which you know, for a, a lot of faculty positions and stuff, you of course have to be a, a member of the church, that kind of a thing. So um so that's the sort of on paper response. But again, I think it goes back to the fact that a lot of people's personal bias and idiosyncrasies in the church is what really plays into this. And um, at the end of the day, um, you know, I, I think that the deeper question the church needs to ask itself, and this is the last thing I'll say on it, is um, I'm, I'm sort of tired of these this conversation and lots of these kinds of conversation really centering around what's legally permissible and like, what's like the bare minimum that we have to do under the law, you know, um, as opposed to talking about what, what is actually, what's our gospel ethic and how does that gospel ethic inform the way that we relate to people? Because we're talking about people at the end of the day, people that happen to be, within our sphere and have some sort of interest in being a part of what we're doing. And in spite of our loaded baggage history around how we have treated the LGBTQIA plus community. And so as, as Don saying, I mean, these are souls we're talking about, you know what I mean? Like that that's what this is really supposed to all be about. Right. And um, it's not enough, you know, and I don't care who's watching this. It's not enough for us to hide behind what is legally permissible and all of these slippery, slippery slope, um, you know, or, you know, concoctions that people come up with to try to shut down the conversation. Um, if a person is in a committed monogamous relationship, I don't care who that's with, I don't have an issue with it and nobody else should, period. Um, and, and God still loves that person and, and, and God should, um, you know, God has called us to minister to that to those that person, and and we don't just get to hide behind a couple Bible verses and say, "Hey, you got to figure that out on your own," because the church within the church's policy, I forgot to say this, it talks about the fact that we are committed to providing a caring environment, even with even in the midst of all the crap that they've said. They said that, but still, we should be providing a caring environment for folks who are LGBTQ. So try to figure that out. I, I haven't yet. Um, but if we even take that part of what we say seriously, there's so much more that we need to be doing. Um, yeah, so I'll, I'll probably leave it leave it at that for now. Yeah, I, I wanted to just kind of plug into kind of what, what Nixon was saying here. And I think it kind of ties into like, like the, the intersectionality conversation that we were kind of having earlier. And I don't, I, I don't even think the church has really recognized the amount of privilege that comes with being like cisgendered 
or or being heterosexual and and the access that you're given into and it it also prohibits many uh heterosexual like minorities like black latino for example to truly see that uh like how crucial this is for many of these people's existence right when when we when we see things like like the the gay agenda being pushed like comments like that when those comments come specifically from minority groups that i see is something that is very alarming because when when i hear that i'm like how are you not recognizing the necessity for for basic needs for basic representation um, experiencing it yourself and and i think that it, it it's part of of the idea um, that that still comes back to expanding our theology. If if we are not allowing ourselves to believe in a God that sees these people as reflections of Him, uh, uh, to see these people who are His creation that are made in His image, um, then we're always going to feel like they're asking for too much. When the reality is they don't have enough, and and I think that. It, it's part of the, the the push that we really need to keep having in this topic is that we we need to really wrestle with what God's asking for us in His Word because I don't think that topic has been had enough. You've you've got random articles here and there, but I don't think there's enough scholars who or or you know big name scholars who have really wrestled with that text to say, okay, can we perhaps go back and really reflect? on what our church should be doing in, based off of this new uh, studying that we've done. I'm good on some of these big names though. <laughs> I, feel like, you. I, don't, I don't need them to give me their theology on why they're homophobic. Um, and I get told all the time, just to that point for five seconds here, Adrian, they are LGBT people are not made in God's image. That is a constant narrative that I'm told in debating these things from pastors. So that just needs to be really clear. They're not made in God's image. They have deterred from that. So, yeah. But um, thank you guys so much for the discussion uh, about the LGBTQ plus community. Uh, we're going to quickly move to the Trump segment. Um, Nixon is saying that we cannot skip over it. Um, Still good. <laughs> I, I might be yelling after this podcast is over, but... <laughs> <laughs> Logan, please give us the rundown about right. the TikTokers, empty stadiums. I mean, Trump was in a dark field, disheveled, sweaty, yellow oh, armpits. The I'm image not. is seared in my mind. Oh, bro. <laughs> so amazing news this past weekend. Trump had his first rally, which was uh, scheduled for June 19th, which is Juneteenth. Terrible uh, PR move by him. And then he tried to reverb, switched it to Saturday because he's like, I'm not a racist. I wouldn't put a, uh, a Trump rally at the landmark time where the Tulsa massacre took place on the landmark black African-American holiday. Like, oh, my goodness. So many. He's like so many things I didn't even know existed. And I'm a white supremacist. How would I not know this stuff? Like, this is ridiculous. Um, so he moves it to Saturday. And it's funny because they had over a million people sign up online for this. <laughs> over a million bodies. And Fox News was like going insane. They were like, there's not even a million people alive in Oklahoma after coronavirus. Like, how is there a million people signing up? This, like, this is insane. 
This is going to be amazing. And then so they get there and like supposedly Trump comes out like before and like peeks behind the curtain and I can only see it. And he starts yelling at his staff and he's like, why are there so many empty blue seats? And supposedly a million people RSVP'd uh, and 6,200 people showed up. Uh, 6,200 people showed up to a 20,000, 19,000 seat arena. Not only that, they had an overflow room of 40,000 outdoor seats and another overflow area with tens of thousands of uh, ready. Oh. And they immediately canceled the Pence and Trump addresses. I mean, let's not even, so it's what ended <laughs> up happening is TikTok and K-pop fans, they got together and were like, yo, let's just, Let's just RSVP this thing, and they're gonna think tons of people are gonna show up, and literally that's what happened. But let's not let's see. We can even go past that as y'all talk about it for a second. But sixty-two hundred people, like Trump's oh. the savior. He had a what they said a thirty-six point margin win in Oklahoma in twenty sixteen. Like that's where they put him in the point margin. Uh, sixty-two hundred people. Like I've been in protests with more than actually most of the protests have more than sixty two hundred people, and they just announced that like on on Instagram in the morning, and we show up in the afternoon. And this dude is like their savior of like greatest president ever, making this world great again, making like bringing back racism to the like honestly that was a basket of deplorables if I've ever seen one. Sixty two hundred of them going out in the coronavirus, narrow mask in sight, ready to. But just oh. shout out to the K pop fans, the TikTokers. I saw a little tweet where the mom was like, "Went in there in the clutch, yo." <laughs> yeah, like that's hilarious. I saw a tweet where my mom go. was like, "I walked into my son and he was like, um, yo, honey, there was TikTokers that like kept Trump from going to a rally.'" And she said he didn't even break stride on his like video game. Was like, "Yeah, mom, I was a part of the TikTok. We all RSVP'd. Like we ruined his rally." And she was like, "I'm so proud of my activist twelve year old Xboxer." Like. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Hilarious, but go Trump, you know. Yeah. That, that's allyship. That's solidarity right there, 100%. bro. I, I just want to mention I just want to mention real quick on this topic. Um every once in a while I I, I get a little frisky and I, I jump in the Facebook comments. And so there was like a I don't even know what it was, but I was watching a live video. I think I was watching like a live church uh service, which was interesting. And then, like, the next video that queued up, predictably with Facebook algorithms, was this, like, right-wing live stream reporters from the Trump rally. And so I'm like, oh, this, this is good. I'm, let me jump in these comments. And so, <laughs> so the first thing I said was, like, I was trying to find it real quick, but I couldn't find it. The first thing I said was, man, lots of empty seats in here, guys. You know, what's going on? And I'm telling you, like, at least 10 different people Oh, over a million people registered. You, you libtard. They're on their way. Don't worry about it. They're on their way. Sam Fry was mad. <laughs> Millions of people registered. They're coming. Oh, oh yeah. no. Great the swamp. Oh, so, reform is coming for you. I, you know, I, I disappeared for like a day. I, I let it, I let it rock. And so, of course, all the reports come out about like the 6,200 people. And so I just like, commented back, yo, how'd that, how'd that million person rally work out for you? Oh, yo, these man. people, I probably have death threats in my inbox right now. I haven't even opened it. It was so that's funny. Oh, that's all I had to say. The whole thing was a joke, bro. And it was yeah, beautiful. The whole presidency was. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I was going to ask, like, 
seriously like what like where were the people because it's not like yeah like a bunch <laughs> of people like RSVP'd but that didn't stop actual Trump supporters from RSVPing to go like there wasn't a limit on the amount of tickets like them RSVPing and didn't stop anybody else from showing up so like where well like, I, I, I also wonder <laughs> like I feel like like there you know like a number of polls were taking that like it it was in the majority of people that did take COVID seriously, mm-hmm. that that did think social distancing was was needed, that did think that we were opening up the economy too prematurely, and so I feel like there 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 may there may be a percentage of people that love to live more than they love Trump, like that <laughs> that might actually be a possibility here. But yeah, man, the the group of people that I saw, like I was listening to this one podcast when I was on my way from from the store, where this guy interviewed a woman and she said she had been out there for four days straight as in no as in she put up a tent and she was spending the night there because she wanted to get good seats at this trump number two number two (laughs) another guy another guy was in and the guy, he, I mean, he knew that she would not waver, but he asked, he said, is there anything that Trump could do that would result in you not voting for him and in you and him losing your support? And she said he would have to cheat on Melania. That that Melania is like with every other wife. <laughs> Melania, wait, there's more. <laughs> he said Melania is the perfect example of what a a a first lady should be. And then he says, "Well, uh, you know about like the Stormy Daniels situation that happened. And you know, like Trump was in his sixties when he did that. Her response was, "Well, it happened before he was president, so it doesn't count." Doesn't count. See, thank you. It doesn't oh, count. Logic, the logic, bro. Yeah. You cannot argue with people like that. He's a registered voter, though, so go out and vote. <laughs> My lord. Oh, I don't know, bro. This, this is our president. We're a joke to the rest of the world. <laughs> a literal logic. Sixty-two hundred people, though. Oh. Like they—they they were talking about how the. They were naming all these shows, and it was the I can't remember one of those kids, the 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 guys that are dressed in the same color. Um, Nick, you probably know what they're called, like those guys that dance or whatever. They got more. They were like they even got fifteen thousand people to come to the arena in Tulsa, <laughs> like um, one of these kids shows or whatever. Like they they were talking about how these old rock bands from the eighties come and they get more than 6,000 people. Like <laughs> that's yeah. not, that's not many more people that was at the Bering Springs Mars, bro. To be honest. Oh, with you. Uh, <laughs> I, I guess. Yeah. I guess all them Sunday students travel to Tulsa this weekend. What I absolutely love about, especially hearing, I mean, when I heard that the TikTokers, cause personally, all oh, blue man group personally, I, I just don't appreciate TikTok. I know Adrian is a big fan of TikTok. Yes, for sure. I am. Huge fan of TikTok. But I think it's so dope that Gen Z is really just being so creative in their activism. And they did it in such a unique and ingenious way. I've like It's something so simple that 
I don't think any of us have actually thought of. Like, why not? Are, like, so sometimes I get those Trump emails. Like, they're asking with the poll, is Trump doing a good job? I'm like, I'm upset that you sent me this email. So I'm just going to answer no. Don't delete it. Let me engage, but in the worst way to him possible. And I love that. Yeah, wow. no, something similar on his birthday. Like they got all birthdays matter. <laughs> they, yeah, they started uh, the, the Obama, Obama picture. Yeah, yeah this is Obama's day. They call it Obama day. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Logan, you on TikTok, bro? Uh, I got a little TikTok. I made one video and then never posted again. Uh, good. Um, I love that. Please, please drop the link. And uh, <laughs> so that is our show, everyone. Um, I wish we had more time to talk about, you know, to be fair, that was probably, I would say, my best, the best part of my day today was especially hot. So I feel like I'm at death's door. Yeah. It is always great to be here with you all at Affirmative Interaction. Thank you all for joining us. And before we close, we're going to do a very quick piqued my interest. I want everyone at home to know that we are all about starting on time and ending on time. So I want everyone on this podcast to swear on your life that you will give a concise PMI. What, what, time, what time did you log on today, Jordan? Uh, this is great. Thank you. Thank you so much for your contributions to this episode. Mike, Mike, please start us off. It <laughs> piqued my interest. Oh, man. So, um, yeah, so just real quick, uh, I just want to share two quick resources. First of all, I want to shout out um, our Haven group on campus at AU. Uh, this is our LGBTQIA uh, support group uh, officially on campus. We, of course, had an off-campus group for many years that still exists called All for One. Uh, so shout out to them for the powerful work that they have done and are doing. Um, Elio Cruz, who I mentioned earlier, was a huge uh, proponent of, of getting that started. And I also, um, although it's not a, a perfect uh, resource, I want to share this resource that was created by the NAD called Guiding Families. Um, I would encourage the NAD to reread it because uh, their their logo is on the back of here. And so uh, had they yeah. been reading their own document, I think the statement may have looked different and better. <laughs> Um, but for, for particularly for folks who are, um, you know, pastoring and whatnot, it, it is a good resource to yeah. create better pathways towards LGBTQ inclusion within your church. And so check that out. Yeah, it's good. Excellent. Thank you so much. And thank you for that tad bit of irony, too, Nixon. Uh, Logan, could you go next for us, please? Yeah. So um, I'll just keep it on topic today. Um, scrolling on your Netflix feed, go to Queer Eye. Um, season five, episode one, you get the first conversation is Noah Hepler. He's a gay pastor in the Evangelical Church, Lutheran Church of the Atonement in Philadelphia. Really great episode, just kind of speaks to some of the, the conversations that, you know, kind of we don't really have around, um, you know, LGBTQ plus people in the profession of faith and um, in the, the work of pastors. I mean, just like not only cool to watch his transformation as an individual, but also kind of normalize what that these people are normal within their faith journey and bringing people to not only, you know, better lives, but to the kingdom. I mean, he's going to have a list of people that are in um, eternity because of some of his like actions. And I think we, 
it's a really it's just a really heartwarming and touching episode. So go check that out. Um, Clear Eyes season five episode one. Love that. Uh, I know I am also a big fan of Queer Eye, too, so I'm definitely going to check that out, Logan. Uh, Danielle, could you please share with us what piqued your interest this week? Yeah, um, mine is not educational at all um, or even related to our topics for today. Uh, since I've been moving, I've been needing to relax, and so I've been doing that by watching Avatar The Last Airbender again. Yes. Um, and I highly recommend it if anyone has never seen it. It's the best cartoon ever. Um, I rewatch it at least once a year, sometimes more. Uh, so yes, uh, if you need to relax, each episode's like 20 minutes. You could probably binge the, all three seasons in a day if you really wanted to. Very good. Yeah. Very, very good. Thank you so much for that. I also streamed that very quickly, and it was an incredible story. I'm probably going to watch it again. Uh, Adrian, could you go next for us, please? Yeah. So um, very bittersweet moment. I finally finished uh, How to Be uh, – the blur is kind of bad here. But How to Be Anti-Racist by um, Ibram X. Kendi. Uh, I feel like my life has changed. It's transformed. Um, it's it's motivated me. Um uh, how to to um, just be a better better ally, specifically for Black women and for people in the LGBTQ community, um, and it's really provided a great historical context to understand uh, just the difference between how we've kind of framed racism in our in our country, just with like racist people, and forgot that like. Fundamentally, it has originated, it's been founded on racist policy. And that when we're able to really understand how significant these racist policies are, then we realize it, it may be better or easier to comprehend uh, an idea of a systemic racist issue in our country that happens, not just from like, you know, racist people that are non-existent anymore. They just kind of died out. That's never been the case. And I think he does an amazing job at walking you through his personal journey and connecting it to um, historical moments in our country. So very good, very good. Very good, very good. Uh, Esther, please share with us next. Yep, so um, I started a new book this week called Thick by Tressie McMillan Cotton, Cottom, Cottom. I'm gonna put the link in to her website and everything about the book there. Um, but it's a collection of her essays and everybody should read it. Black women should read it just for affirmation. Like there's so much that she says in it that's just like, mm -hmm. I feel this on a level. And everybody else should read it to be challenged. It'll probably make you mad, but it's so good. It's very accessible. Like the language is easy to understand. It's not like difficult to follow, but it's, she says a lot and it's, it's really, mm -hmm. really thoughtful, so. Very good. Thank you so much for sharing. Uh, my PMI is a little more personal, and it is honestly a flex, but a good flex at that. My partner, Amani Cherry, was on uh, Small Talk Big God today uh, at Hope Channel, and she did a phenomenal job. The point she made on us engaging with matters that aren't simply political, but that are human that are important to each and every soul in this country especially we need to engage in those things that is what makes us you know christian that's what makes us followers she says it better than i ever could so i'm gonna drop the link in the description 
please check it out. She's amazing. She's great. Of course, I would know because she's my girlfriend. Thank you so much. I was on there. You didn't drop my video. As a camera, but that's cool. You mine either. It's cool. Yeah, that's cool. That's great. Yeah. I don't, I don't care. About that. All right. <laughs> thank you so much for coming on the show, uh, everyone. And thank you so much for joining us at uh, uh, Affirmative Interaction. We are so happy that we got to spend some time with you. We'll be back here next week. Hopefully Trump has another rally because we love to roast him. But hopefully there will always be topics for us to discuss to uplift and to affirm the interaction we all have with each other. Thank you so much, and we'll see you guys next week. That's a good ending. <laughs>